0: Good evening and welcome in to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by QB11 himself, Andrew. Good evening. Good evening, Doug. How are you doing today? I am good. The Oregon Ducks opened up a can of whoop-ass on UCLA yesterday, just like the Blacks are about to do to the Greens in season two of House of the Dragon. Yeah, maybe after the uh, 2024 season when Dante Moore leads us to a national title, we can do some coverage of season two of game of thrones yeah i think that might be when season two (laughs) eventually comes (laughs) out too uh might be a while unfortunately but uh pretty good first season uh i'm looking forward to the second season when it finally gets here for sure
1: yeah absolutely it's uh it's brutal that they waited until after the first episode premiered to renew for another season they have to do all their
0: pre-show work and they haven't even started filming yet so But we will have a lot of Oregon Duck football coverage on this podcast all throughout that time. And before we know it, it'll be here. Um, And on that note, you can find us on Audible, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google, everywhere you want to hear it. Not Audible. We're not on Audible. Spotify, Apple Podcasts,
1: Google. (laughs) Wherever you listen to your podcast, if you can't find us, uh, let Doug know and he'll take care of it.
0: I'll get it there. Yeah. Uh, so, And uh, you can also follow us at the at QB11 show on Twitter. And of course, uh, we did picks last week, Andrew, and we'll be talking about those later in the show after we talk about the Ducks UCLA game. But we both went six and four this week. So a little bit back on the winning track for us both after last week's uh, results that we don't want to talk about. So you are now 42 and 30 on the season, 58%. I'm inching my way closer to 534 and 38, 47%. That's pretty good.
1: Especially when you consider like, like if you compare us to some, maybe other podcasts in terms of picks, a lot of podcasts, like they, they come in and they get to bring in their own picks, right? Like they don't have to pick every big game of the season. um, Because some of these games are games that like, frankly, we don't feel all that confident about. Um, But to be, 58 percent on games on all major games every weekend is pretty solid so i'll take that
0: yeah and and just so the listeners know i mean the way i pick these games every week is basically we do all the pac 12 games and then we do all the games that feature a top 25 versus top 25 matchup and then occasionally we'll throw in another game if it's you know real intriguing for what other reasons so we are picking games that are that are generally some of the harder to pick ones on a week-to-week basis versus the oh is you know Ohio State going to win by 30? Yeah, they probably will. That's easy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because if we could just go out and pick our own games, I think we'd both do a little bit better. But n- needless to say, let's uh, let's get into U- UCLA recap here.
0: Yeah, so the Ducks uh, hosted the Bruins on Saturday. Game day was there. Josh Pate was there. Everybody was there. The eyes of the football world were in Eugene and Autzen Stadium, 1230 kickoff. And the Ducks uh, won pretty convincingly. 45 to 30 was the final score. The second half was pretty much toggling between a, a 22 and a 15-point lead the entire time. And the Ducks really uh, ran away with this one pretty early, uh, early mid-third, I'd say. It was game over time, and uh, we just all ju- sang shout and had a great time. And um, big win for the Ducks to move to 6-1 and one on the year. The only undefeated team last, left in the Pac-12 at 4-0. Uh, UCLA, Utah, and USC all sit one game behind in the last column. What are some of your first thoughts on this one, QB?
1: It seemed like peak Odson. It seemed like Odson was kind of back to the glory days, like completely filled to the brim, standing room only. Excellent energy from kickoff all the way to the end of the game. Um, and I think it helps when you have a team that's playing at the level that Oregon's playing at right now, where they're just executing consistently, drive to drive, scoring points, being able to change tempo and really – Dictate the terms of the game to their opponent. It, it, at no point in this game did it feel like Oregon wasn't in control of their own fate. Uh, didn't, th- despite the fact that UCLA moved the ball with some effectiveness, converted some big fourth downs, and and w- was generally putting points on the board. Um, about fifty-fifty field goals to touchdowns when they did get into the red area. It, it still felt like Oregon was in complete control.
0: Yeah. I totally agree with that. I I thought there were three key moments in the game. Um, The first one, it's going to sound crazy. I thought holding UCLA to a field goal on their first possession was a key moment. You know, we, we got a field goal on ours kind of felt like a missed opportunity to, you know, kind of stall that drive out. And then, you know, I think we talked about this on the preview pod. UCLA will score a touchdown on their first possession. Chip's going to scheme something up. They're going to be great. They're going to go down. They're going to take. They're going to get seven. And and I I sat there in the stadium, absolutely expecting that to happen. And and so when we walked off the field goal with you know with a three three tie, I felt like that was a win. Um, you know, we didn't relinquish the lead. We didn't feel like we had to get the answer back right away. And and getting them uh, holding them to three on that first possession, I thought was the first key moment. I think the second one, obviously, is the thing everyone's going to talk about, the onside kick, surprise onside kick that stole the possession in the second quarter and really turned this into what was looking like it might be kind of one of those, you know, trading touchdowns games that that is tied all the way through and into what turned into a two-possession lead immediately and, and never got closer again after that. And then I think the third key moment of the game was after halftime, Again, holding UCLA to a field goal on their first drive after half. And then Oregon went on what to me was just the the drive of the game and probably my favorite Oregon possession of the entire season. um you know, to start that to start that, you know, their first possession of the third quarter. It was a fifteen play drive, started at their own eighteen yard line. They used fifteen plays. They went for it twice on fourth and one, both times in their own territory. The first time on the twenty seven yard line, the next time on the 38 yard line and methodically drove the ball down the field in 15 plays, used seven and a half minutes, and then went up, what was it, 31 13 and a half. So they went up 38 16 and effectively ended the game. I mean, ended the game with four minutes to go in the third quarter on a 15 play drive that was, it was almost all running too. I mean, there's a couple pass plays sprinkled in there, including the touchdown, but it was just a we're going to run the ball down your throat. We're going to take forever to do it. And there's nothing you can do about it. And the game will be over.
1: It was, it was strange because so the first 12 plays that driver all runs um, and it was, you could, I didn't really realize it for the first couple, like first three or four minutes of the drive that they were ticking off 30 seconds between each play. But I was just like, I was slowly realizing as the, the drive continued to progress and like Oregon, not having a whole lot of explosive plays earlier in that drive ended up working on their event advantage. It just elongated the drive. There was so much dead time between plays that was just rolling off the clock. Uh, And it was weird because it was early in the third quarter. Oregon is up by three scores and it just, it felt like the game was over already. It just felt like they were already effectively running clock. They were converting first downs and still moving the ball in the process at times um, in past years. And when Oregon would try to go to this like slow methodical pace, they would just go three and out. And so uh, really good to see that level of execution because it, it ultimately put the game on ice early, early, like mid, mid third quarter. It really felt like this game
0: was over. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oregon scored on their first eight possessions of the game, uh, a field goal on the first possession and then seven straight touchdowns. I'm sorry, seven possessions. The game field goal on the first possession and then six straight touchdowns uh, before, you know, they, the game was over. And then UCLA also scored on all of their possessions. Then the difference was they settled for three field goals. Uh, on their three of their first four uh, scores were field goals, and then and then by that point they were down too far because of, of trading field goals for touchdowns, as well as the lost possession on the on the onside kick in the first half, and and that was really the difference in what could have been maybe a shootout into what was a pretty comfortable easy victory was was getting touchdowns and, and UCLA getting field goals.
1: Well, and the thing was too is outside of the one possession where they punted, I think it was early fourth quarter; it might have been late third. Oregon was in position to punch the ball in again at the end of the game and and drop the 50 burger. Like it was, they were not being stopped at really any point. There was really not a whole lot of resistance. Um, There was more resistance when they packed it into that 14 personnel package that we all love so much, but that was almost by design. It was like, all right, yeah, tackle us for five yard gains and we're just going to bleed this clock out. And, like how demoralizing and soul crushing for the, the psyche of the UCLA offense. Like they're all stressed and pressed and wanting to get, get onto the field and go try to take, make big chunks and, and get back into the game. And the Oregon offense is just out there. Just be like, Nope, you don't get to have the ball back. Um, So I think that that it, it's interesting, like the psychological game that's being played with that. Uh, also, like as much as the, timing and in terms of game state was fantastic on that onside kick call by coach Lanning. It was also excellent in terms of timing with the weather. And he talked about that in the post-game press conference about how, sorry guys. Also, I want to apologize. I've been kind of losing my voice here, but uh, he talked about in the post-game press conference, how it was, it was also a matter of, they saw the weather coming in. They knew the weather was going to be a factor. They wanted to capitalize on as many, meaningful time possessions as possible with quality weather where they could really run the whole offense. And they did that and bow made exceptional decisions and it really protected the football. Oregon was able to pick off Dorian Thompson Robinson once in this game. They really should have had three. Um, Addison dropped one early in the game that ended up being a three point drive for, for the UCLA Bruins. And then uh, Christian Gonzalez dropped one, on a subsequent drive in the second quarter that ended up being a seven point drive for UCLA. So uh, despite potentially fumbling a few opportunities to turn the ball over and take points off the board for UCLA, uh, Oregon managing to win this game convincingly by multiple scores, really says a lot about the quality of this team.
0: Yeah, and I thought, you know, Oregon did a great job, obviously didn't turn the ball over themselves and they've really, you know, protected the ball extremely well this season. Um, but also their their penalties were much better under control this game. You know they've had some struggles with penalties at times this year. Obviously the Stanford game being being the biggest example, but there are others. And they really you know there's st- there's still more procedural penalties you'd like than you'd like to see, especially at home. You know a multiple false starts. You know it's just it's super frustrating when you're playing at home. Uh, but for the most part, their penalty their penalties were pretty subdued, pretty in control. I thought the referees and the officials in this game were were really outstanding in the fact that you didn't really notice them. They managed the game well. I thought there wasn't any egregious calls or missed calls either way. You know, they kind of let the teams play, which is always what I prefer. You know, I, I do think this officiating crew is probably the best one in the Pac-12. And it, it's nice to see that they assigned their best crew to their biggest game this week. And hopefully we'll see that, you know, for the whole conference going forward, you know, the rest of the, the rest of the season. But I don't know enough about officiating. I just brought it up to to say that I think they did a really good job in that. Yeah, I mean,
1: it. we could eliminate like half of the procedural penalties on a game to game basis if we just like installed some type of implant in Marcus Harper, where the second he goes three yards downfield on a pass play, like his whole body seizes up and he just falls over, because that guy has had like five or six. Uh, illegal man downfield penalties this season alone by himself. But I I love the effort. I love that he's trying to get downfield and get blocks, but it's pretty funny that it's like, it's just him consistently. Yeah. um, (laughs) Whenever we get get to find consistently looking to find work, but unfortunately just way beyond where he's allowed to be on the field.
0: Yeah, whenever we get the illegal man downfield, I'm like, oh, it's got to be on 55, right? You know, poor Marcus. I mean, it's his first, it's his first, you know, any significant playing time in his career at Oregon, and I'm sure that's going to be something he's going to clean up quite a bit, and he's going to be a big part of this team, you know, for the foreseeable future. So, don't want to pick on him too much. He's doing a great job.
1: Well, he's been exceptional. I mean, he's been, I mean, and really, like, it's a compliment to his motor and the fact that like, when he's when he's doing his combo blocks and getting up to the second level, like he's really aggressive about getting up there and finding work to create lanes for the running back. So it's definitely not a bad thing. It's just situationally there needs to be a little bit of understanding at times um, that, that the run is not the only thing that's being
0: called on the play. So. Yeah, and you know, while we're on the subject of the offensive line, I mean, obviously we got a shout out to those guys again, right? That offensive line, it, it, as they've been all season, has just been completely dominant. No sacks allowed against a team who has had a lot of sacks, you know, coming into this game. One of the leaders in the conference and and in the country. Um, they they also ran the ball and helped Oregon run the ball for um, two hundred sixty yards. Yeah, there you go, two hundred sixty yards rushing. So. Another dominant performance by the Oregon offensive line.
1: Yeah, and I'll say they they had more breakdowns in pass protection than they've had this year. Um, mostly just Latu getting some wins coming off both edges against Bass and Sala, but Bo Nix had his best game of the season and he was able to manage that pressure in a really, really impressive way. Whether it was finding guys to replace on side-adjust routes and throwing, throwing into the blitz um, or escaping the pocket and converting um, either with his arm or his legs – the decision making, the accuracy downfield, the verticality against pressure in our passing game, um, and just the ball placement and the overall moxie and control he showed was really, really impressive. Like if this is if this is the Bo Nicks that we
0: can get every week, there's some serious upside still for this team moving into the future here. Yeah, 22 of 28, 283 yards, five touchdowns, no picks, another uh, 51 yards on the ground, which you know he he's a guy who you know he pulls a couple of design runs or, or option runs you know a few a game they're always at opportune times they always seem to be the right read they always result in in the yardage we need the sneak the sneaks work uh and then he you know he always seems to get a couple scrambles a game that are also key at moments so he's just operating this offense at at such a ridiculously high high level right now um it's incredible what he's doing out there, and the way that he and Kenny Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, just seem to be completely in lockstep with where this offense needs to be.
1: Yeah, well, there's two things I want to bring up. Like the first thing is, is even when he makes a bad decision, because he has misreads in the in the zone reader RPO game, because of his athletic ability um, and his body control, he's able to get skinny and find his way into these little creases and get either touchdowns or first downs. The I think it was the second, fourth down that we converted on that first drive of the third quarter. That was not the right read, but he was just, he's such a twitchy little athlete in in the short area. He's able to get skinny and get through there and get to convert the first down. And that's been super, super useful for us all season long. I mean, there was a third and 12 late in the game that he converted with his legs. That was also a really nice play. Um, And and it gives Oregon a dimension of being able to, to kind of do some of that half roll and full roll stuff. Uh, like we saw on the Troy Franklin touchdown to end end the first half, uh, another really clutch throw and catch by that combination. Uh, but Bo is just—he's also getting through his progressions. He's seeing things that aren't primary reads, like the Bucky touchdown in the four, in the first fourth quarter or third quarter. I think it might be the third uh, on the wheel route. Like that's not really a primary part of the read in that mesh concept. Like they're really trying to work. Troy Franklin or Motivea, who's running the OTB, that over-the-ball route, um, just to get to the sticks. And he recognizes, he catches out of his peripheral vision that the corner is cheating inside to take away Franklin, finds Bucky, uh, and we get an explosive and a touchdown play out of it. So um, doing a good job of managing, like when we get those offsides plays, he's turning those into free attempts downfield. There was one that they didn't actually call the um, offsides on in this game, where He escapes the pocket and Troy Franklin just makes a nutty adjustment on the sideline. So that combination and just the overall command of the offense is why Oregon right now is easily the best offense in the conference.
0: Yeah, for sure. And speaking of Troy, you know, 10 or sorry, eight catches, 132 yards, two touchdowns, most of that in the first half and all of it kind of, it was all in the first half. Yeah. I mean, they shut it down in the second half, you know, being up so big, but you know, big, huge game for Troy. He was, you know, obviously, he had the long the the forty nine yarder, which was just a great throw and catch, and and then obviously that sideline one you talked about as well. But he was he he continues to be just an outstanding you know weapon for this Oregon offense, and really emerging as one of the best wide receivers in this conference.
1: Oh, a hundred percent! Like the release on his on that post that he caught. I mean, it was a tremendous ball by Bo. But that release was just disgusting. I mean, the the adjustments he made on two back two two different back shoulder balls down the sideline, uh, one go in each direction. Those were just insane catches. Chase Cota also quietly had a really strong game. Had a big twenty-something yard catch on a third down called back uh, due to a holding penalty. But overall, like his perimeter blocking, just his dependability. Like he's been, he's been much more useful and effective than I thought he would be. Not, not that I didn't think he had the ability to play at this level, but just his overall dependability and his toughness. And actually like when he gets unraveled, his speed is better than I think I was probably giving him credit for coming into the season.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with that. And I think he's been a a really, really solid number two. And I think his veteran president's leadership, like you said, the the blocking out there, he, he seems to make big catches at important moments, Um, you know, all the tight ends, got a catch. Oh, nope. Take that back. Montevallo Ma- didn't, but the, yeah, yeah he did. Montevallo
1: caught a conversion in the fourth quarter on that. Oh last yeah, drive. that's
0: right. Yeah. He got the conversion. Yeah. So all the tight ends got under the action. Uh, Bucky had his first hundred yard game as a duck 19 for one Oh seven. He also caught three balls for 57 yards. That will, that touchdown obviously was a big moment in the third quarter there uh Noah was great 12 for 73 I mean everyone there's so many Sean Dollars had two carries for 27 yards I mean that 18 yarder he busted off was as good of a run as Bucky or or Noah had too like
1: well it's really important to mention here like Sean Dollars rep count hasn't been as high this year but whenever he's played especially I love that we're finding ways to get him on the field using that 21 personnel package like he is blocking his ass off it's not he's not showing the signs of a guy who's upset or not happy with the fact that maybe he's not the premier back or the guy that's getting all the touches. Like when he gets on the field, he's just doing his best to take advantage of the situation. And it's not just when he has the ball, like he's playing really, really physical. He's being a good team player away from the ball, throwing tremendous blocks on the edge for, for Whittington when it goes away from him. And he's receiving the same back from Whittington when, when he gets his time. So uh, really proud of just like what a great kid, what a great story. Like coming back from injury last year, really struggling with injuries the last couple of years. The adversity, like you have two transfers come in that are really good players and kind of take maybe the lead role away. Um, and just to keep grinding it out, keep playing at a high level. And I'm glad that the staff is finding ways to reward that by getting him on the field um, and getting him touches. And I hope to
0: see that role and that package continue to grow as the season goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll just kind of one more thought on the offense is if there was anybody out there who still doubted that Kenny Dillingham was a good hire, like uh, just, you know, get out of town. You know, there was a lot of concern and a lot of, you know, people freaking out in the off season. What's, you know, he's never, never called a game. Is he going to be any good? He's only 31 years old. Like if you haven't been convinced now through seven games, like I don't even know what you're watching. Cause this offense is elite the way that I feel like a broken record. We talk about this every week. Right. But the amount of ways that he attacks the defense and the layers he's putting on, on, you know, giving, giving the defense, like the same look over and over, but running seven different things off of it. It it's incredible. Like it's, it's elite level stuff and, and people need to wake up and see that this guy is killing it
1: this is going to sound like a homer take but i would not trade him for any coordinator in college football right now because oregon when oregon has had good offenses in the past oregon has done what oregon has done and what i mean by that is there was a system there was like a key personnel grouping or and and, and that was how they won right like when it, when it was early chip it was a lot of tw- a lot of twenty twenty one personnel a lot of Uh, zone read and triple option and that kind of stuff and that was what we did we were like we were a spread team we played light um, and we utilized a a lot of different um, backfield formations and and actions whereas now with coach Dillingham what what Oregon is everything we do we have 21 personnel packages we've got empty we've we run tons of empty we run tons of 14 personnel we run tons of 11 tons of 12 or, Oregon is func- functionally a different offense on every drive depending on game state what kind of tempo they want to run how explosive we want to be like there, there's there's so many different ways and tempos and the thing is is that when they change personnel groupings and when they change styles and and schematic um yeah, schematic styles for a drive or for a section of plays within a drive, there's no drop-off. It's not like they just like haphazardly installed it during the week and guys aren't able to execute at a high level because they haven't been repped in it. There's no, there's zero execution drop-off across every personnel grouping and every type of play in the playbook at this moment. And so... That right there tells me that we have a really good defense, offensive coordinator who's extremely detailed, who's really good at teaching the kids, and the kids understand what is being taught on on a um, on more of a principled level as opposed to just like memorizing a single play because they're able to apply that across a gambit of of formations and personnel packages, and it's really it's fun to watch because the the. I can't even imagine how difficult it is to prepare for this offense on a week to week basis because that we're doing all of my favorite things from all of my favorite offenses. And you really don't usually see these things all married together under the same roof.
0: Yeah. It, I can't imagine just sitting there in the film room going like, okay, here's the look they're going to give you. And it's like, <laughs> here's one of the 12 looks they could give you. And Oh, by the way, out of all of those 12 looks, they have a bunch of variations of what they're going to do from them. <laughs> like, Good luck
1: yeah no coach Dillingham has been in his bag like he he absolutely should win the broils this year i I don't I'm being a homer here. I don't know who else from a coordinator standpoint has had a really strong season but to this point, I can't imagine anyone's been better It's I mean possibly the the offensive coordinator at Tennessee, but that's an offensive coordinator under an offensive head coach like this is Kenny Dillingham coming in installing a brand new offense, bringing a quarterback. In, in a lot of ways that by national media was considered a retread and just absolutely diming teams up on a weekly basis for 45 plus points. And really like Oregon could have scored 60 on most of these teams. Yeah.
0: I mean, they've been dialing it down in the third quarter, you know, ha- over half the games this year, including this one. Yeah. Like this is a top 10 matchup where
1: Oregon was so dominant offensively in this game that really, for all intents and purposes, it was over with 20
0: minutes left. Yeah, it, it's crazy. You want to flip over to the defensive side of the ball? Yeah, absolutely. So UCLA, obviously, from a drive standpoint, was pretty successful. They they also scored on their first four, six, uh, five drives of the game, uh, field goal, touchdown, field goal. Then it was half. They only had three functional drives in the first half, um, which is, again, a credit to the onside kick that really changed, uh, not changed, but accelerated the, the momentum of the game, I would say. And limited them to those three, those three first half possessions, and and they kicked field goals on two of them. Which, you know, I know people want to talk about the yardage and want to talk about the success rate, and those are not great things. You know, over, I mean, UCLA scored or had 448 yards, which is a, a, not a like crazy great, great number. It's a middle of the road average number, but but at the end of the day, like Oregon held them to field goals on three of their first four trips you know, into Oregon territory. And I think that's a win. I think that's a win for this defense against an offense, by the way, which was a number four offense in SP plus coming into this game is still number six after this game. This is a really good offense. And the Oregon defense held them to three field goals in their first four red zone trips, or none not of them all even reached the red zone. And I think that's a win. I think that's a success. And then it was game over and, you know, they got another couple of touchdowns.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the UCLA offense, and this is also true for a Utah offense that we're going to see here in a couple weeks, both those teams have struggled to convert red zone possessions into touchdowns. And so um, it was good to see that Oregon was competent enough to to force the, kind of the trend to continue in that sense. But Oregon needs to find a way to get off the field better on in third and fourth down situations. Um, it, it was an improvement, I think, on third down this week, but just the amount of kind of ridiculous – conversions that Oregon had Uh, I'm pulling up the
0: yeah both teams were six for 12 on third down Um, yeah
1: like 50% on third down and 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 giving up 66% of fourth downs Um, and really most of those I think I think both conversions were fourth and five plus Uh, so continuing to work on that stuff but within that I think if you took a four-play sample set in most situations two of them are successful plays for the Oregon defense. It's finding the way to tilt that third play in the right direction um, so that you can find a way to get stops against better offenses on a more consistent basis. But getting, getting Brian Addison back into the mix was good. He made some really nice plays in this game uh, was, was rangy and, and did a good job of keeping things in front. And also I think this is another important piece to, to kind of mention here when Oregon got that lead and developed that lead, we, we, they backed out a lot of bodies out of the box and they were willing to give up some efficiency run game. Cause all it did was shorten the game. Right. And so, uh, playing those two high safeties and just the lack of explosive passing allowed by this Oregon defensive back crew, like that is very clearly the, a decision that was made by Oregon's defensive staff, um, in regards to how they were going to play that game once, once Oregon got the lead. So, uh, Uh, that needs to be considered when you're looking at these numbers. The context is that Oregon played a too high shell, didn't come out of it the entire game and was content to let UCLA move the ball between the the thirties and then tighten things up. Once he got more towards the red zone.
0: Yeah. And Zach Charbonnet, he had a, he had a nice game on the stat sheet 19 for one thirty six and a touchdown and caught a couple passes as well. And four passes he was, I mean, Zach Charbonnet is the best running back in his conference. uh, And I, I, don't think that's controversial, but he, he racked up a lot of numbers, but I don't think he dominated the game in the way that uh, oftentimes you'd see from a stat line like that.
1: No, I, I don't think he did either. And the thing about him is he's getting a lot of yardage after contact, regardless of who he plays against. Yeah. I, I think, I think Oregon did a solid job of tackling. I don't think this was our best tackling effort, but I think a lot of that credit needs to be given to the back in this sense, because, uh, he's been really difficult for everybody to handle. He's probably the best back in the league right now. Um, And good backs with that type of ability are going to make some guys miss. They're going to get some yards after contact. They're going to frustrate you and be difficult to deal with. But I think, again, Oregon is totally content with Zach Charbonnet beating them uh, four or five yards at a time for the most part with the occasional bigger run. Because when when you're nursing somewhere between a 15 – And twenty-two point lead, depending on point in the game, all they're doing is taking the time off the clock for you. So, uh, overall, I think this was a solid performance by the defense. I don't think this was one of the better performances, Uh, but there were some highlights here by a secondary. I think that's starting to somewhat round into form.
0: Yeah, I think you know we'll we'll talk about or we have talked a lot about you know I think you know pass rush needs to be better. I thought they had some moments today. Didn't get home. But you know, I thought they had some moments of pressure. You know, Dorian Thompson-Robinson is is slippery uh, for sure. I thought the, the the couple of times where the pressure was was probably the best and the most noticeable, I think, were both Noah Sewell, um, you know, forced, the inter- forced him to throw that fourth down pass that ended up being intercepted in the end zone. Uh, and I think there was another one that he kind of forced, you know, that turned into an incompletion in a, in a key moment as well. Um, but other than that, I mean, Dorian – you know, he came into this game with, with a ton of hype, ton of, you know, people were talking Heisman, you know, best quarterback in the conference, fifth year senior it's his year. Um, and I, you know, his numbers are solid 27 for 39, 262, two touchdowns, the interception ran eight times for another 38 yards. But I mean, he was thoroughly outplayed by Bonex in this game. Um, and he, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't really do anything to like, help you, you know, when, when they needed a big play, you know, when that red area, right. To, to get a crucial third down, to keep a drive going and and not settle for three points. They couldn't make it, you know, he didn't make it. Um, So I thought he was good, but uh, certainly not, not great. I'm going to pat us on the back here a little bit, Doug, in
1: our preview, we talked about how really DTR has been kind of a one read quarterback most of this year and Oregon played a lot of zone in this game and really was forcing him to get through progressions at a time times he was able to do that at others. You could see him getting impatient and bailing on the pocket or maybe pre- or maybe pressure getting there and starting to make him bail. Uh, but I think it really hurt his efficiency, and you saw him start to get impatient at times and force balls deep into coverage. That was really good. Where And that's where kind of all the interceptions and interception possible plays came, um, whether it was the kind of Hail Mary down the right sideline that Gonzo just kind of mistimed the high point on um, or the the post into triple coverage in the first half that brian addison should have intercepted so i agree i think i think noah sewell is starting to play better you can tell he's getting healthier um, our linebackers are still getting lost in zone coverage at times in the middle of the field a lot of the conversions that that ucla was able to make uh, we're just finding guys into the in the soft spots of those interior zones so that's something that's going to have to continue to be a point of emphasis as they move into the coming weeks but overall i can live with that i think the area that we can pretty definitively say is just not really all like not pretty much non-existent is the pass rush um, and i think that there's some players on the interior that have done some decent things brandon Dorlis, most notably dj johnson is is solid but he's not he's not someone that you can consistently depend on to just win and get to the quarterback and cause havoc plays uh, i think Layatu latu really outplayed him in terms of that duel on saturday uh, causing Bonix to get out of the pocket. Unfortunately, Bonix outside of the pocket at Oregon has been an absolute assassin this year. So it didn't it didn't show up on the stat sheet for him, but he was getting a lot of pressures. Oregon really, whether it's through the portal recruiting, Oregon really needs to be aggressive about finding a pass rusher because if you could have a Kayvon Thibodeau on this defense, it would immediately elevate this defense pretty considerably. Um, really asking a lot for all these defensive backs to have to cover for four or five seconds at a time when you're playing against the quality of quarterbacks we're going to see in this season.
0: Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. I think there was there was off there's oftentimes all season long where there's just too much time or the pass rush can't get home and and a guy you know was able to keep the play alive and make a play. Um, yeah, you know, I think there was a fourth interception opportunity, a tipped ball at the line, and it was that play where there's like five ducks in in the vicinity, but so was Jake Bobo. And then the ball just happened to goes right to him on the tip and he catches it. And it's like, Oh my gosh, that could have been, that could have been a pick six going the other way. And just by the, by the misfortune of a, of an unlucky bounce, I guess, in that scenario. But you know, Bobo was, was really good. You know, I think eight catches 101 yards, a touchdown. He had that one hander, you know, really high ball that, you know, might have been another pick, right? You know, you know, deep ball over the middle often often ends up in an easy pick for a safety center fielder. But he went up and got it with one hand, which was a great catch. He he was around the ball a lot today. He was always the guy that seemed to be making a key conversion catch uh, for for Dorian, and and I think really bailed him out a number of times on what weren't great throws, including that fourth down throw that, that led to a touchdown and kind of kept them alive.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Some big plays by Bobo. Like It was funny because I was thinking of myself subconsciously throughout this game, like Bobo hasn't really done anything. And then all of a sudden he just kind of starts finding those underneath zones, um, doing a good job in that, and then making some pretty – I don't want to call them lucky catches because he's done it consistently all year, but just like really contested catches on throws that aren't really all that great. Um, and if a guy's going to make those plays, like there's really not a whole lot you can do about it. So – You you move forward, uh, there's areas for growth. Hopefully, Taki Tamani is not dealing with a long-term injury. He's been really strong for Oregon this year in the middle. Um, Being able to keep Jordan Riley healthy has been a a big plus. So, um, praying for a quick recovery on whatever injury that he sustained throughout this game.
0: Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit, you know, leading up to this game, but obviously now that it's over and Oregon securing the win, you know, for far as the Pac-12 standing go and the race to the – Pac-12 title game. This really puts Oregon in the driver's seat. They're the only undefeated team in the conference left, with uh, UCLA, USC, and Utah all having one loss each. And Oregon really controls their own destiny at this point. Um, So does USC, as a matter of fact, and so does UCLA. So uh, Utah needs a little bit of help, uh, obviously starting with having to win in aughts and in a a few weeks. But Oregon really really sits in the strongest position of everyone going down the stretch in the conference and. you know doesn't mean they can let up and and not not continue to to do what they've been doing, but they're this 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 game really gives them a nice position to get to Vegas uh, come the end of the season.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think with the way that Oregon's playing right now, I have a hard time seeing them losing on the road to either Cal or Colorado, um, especially Colorado. We'll get to that in a minute, uh, but when you have your two of your three toughest games uh, all at home in a place that has been just a really great and, and massive advantage from an environmental standpoint this season, I I've, I think Oregon might have a really good shot of, of making some things happen here down the stretch.
0: Yeah, I think so too. And they got to be the favorite at this point. Um, it's certainly not to win the title necessarily, but certainly the favorite to get to Vegas and be one of those two teams there. I think the most mathematically, the most likely outcome will be Oregon versus USC, which I think is the matchup that the conference won't say this but the conference is probably most wants to see it's going to get the best ratings it's going to have the most attention from a national perspective. Um, and I think that is the most likely matchup and it also it's not a rematch, right any of the other combinations would be a rematch and I think that would be uh, be pretty special to see. Oregon versus USC in Vegas, but you know, a lot of games between then and now, and the ducks have to keep taking care of business. Of course. Perfect. So let's transition to some
1: of these other PAC 12 games
0: that we, we saw on Saturday night. Yeah. Let's start with uh, Washington. Well, won't we Washington went down to Cal. (laughs) We both uh, had picked Washington to cover. And so of course they don't, because the Huskies are always going to let, let, let their fans down. Um, they uh, won 28 to 21 down on, down in strawberry Canyon there in a game that was uh, pretty brutal to watch if I'm being honest. And I did watch it, which is says a lot about me.
1: <laughs> I was pretty liquored up for this one. So I, uh, I don't know that I really watched it with the same intensity that you did. And I'm actually very thankful for that because this, uh, this game had a very Iowa quality to it in, in certain stints. So um Washington I picked them to cover they always like don't do it when I pick them to so um, I'm gonna start using that in my favor here as we move forward into the deeper parts of the season overall like Michael Penix had a pretty strong day Um, Cal made some plays I, I saw in the secondary at times. But for the most part, as long as Penix was staying patient, Washington was able to move the ball up and down the field, stalled out in the red zone a couple times, had to, had to settle for field goals, missed a field goal in the first half. That really kept the score down. Um, Cal offensively, like their drive chart is pretty rough. Like They really were having a hard time getting anything going against a defense that, frankly, has looked like it couldn't stop anything for large portions of this season. So um, pretty down on the Cal offense. The 21 points they did muster came off some pretty ridiculous acrobatic catches, um, extending drives and get, kind of getting them down into the scoring area. Uh, very little explosiveness for Cal. Washington was very clearly the better team. I'm, I'm very surprised that not only were they held under 30, but they they didn't run away with this game
0: based on overall team quality. Yeah, that's the Cal offense, as you said many weeks ago, and, and you continue to be right about. Um, like, like, let me let me read this really quick. So
1: this is the Cal Cal's first half drive chart. Five plays, 16 yards punt. Three plays, three yards punt. Six plays, 23 yards punt. Ten plays, 41 yards punt. Like the end of half. <laughs> ten
0: plays and four, 41 yards over ten plays. That's yeah. crazy.
1: Yeah, it's a br- it is brutal. How do, you, how do
0: you run ten plays and end up punting? Like, <laughs> that's crazy.
1: I mean – Given that the, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where this drive started. Um 15 started at the it, 15. It might've required 20 points or 20 plus drive or uh, plays for them to actually score a touchdown on that drive based on their yards per play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it's bad. They, they, they got off to a little bit better of a start in the, uh in the second half, 13 plays, 75 yard touchdown, six plays 65 yard touchdown on a pretty broken coverage. Uh, where Sturdivant really just smoked Perryman on the outside and, and got a long touchdown. Um and kind of both offenses came alive to start, but then the punt fest resumed with Washington and Cal combining for uh three punts and a downs to end the
0: game. Yeah, it was uh it was delightful to watch. Um I it was just a joy. I, I actually kind of disagree. I I don't think Penix had that great of a game. I mean, he threw for 374 yards, but it took him 52 passes to do it, which is a little over seven yards a pass. Um, I mean, he he didn't turn the ball over. And at the end of the day, they got him in the end zone, you know, a couple of times. But, you know, it's probably pretty far down his list of games this year as far as quality, in my opinion. But the Cal defense is, you know, it is. Pretty decent, I guess. You know, I don't know how good it is, but it's statistically one of the better defenses in the conference, at least from a scoring standpoint. So I guess uh, maybe I'll give them some some more credit the, there, one, the
1: one thing to keep in mind about the Cal defense, though, is they've yet to play any of the good offenses yeah. in the conference. Like, they haven't played SC, haven't played Oregon, they haven't played Utah, and they haven't played UCLA. Um, and so Washington was kind of the first halfway decent offense we've seen them play. And I do think that the Washington – I don't. I don't think halfway decent is near the respect that they deserve. The Washington offense is pretty good. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So this is this is a performance that maybe if you're a Cal fan gives you a little bit of confidence in their ability to defend some teams down the stretch here because they have a pretty brutal finish to the to the season from a schedule standpoint. So um, they as they continue here, they go um, Oregon at home at USC at Oregon State. Uh, the Cal Stanford game, and then they play UCLA to finish the season. So they're going to play Oregon, USC, and and UCLA in their last five games. um, Have fun, Cal. Have fun. Should should thoroughly expose how good or not good this defense is.
0: Yeah, neither team could run the ball in this game. 102 for Washington, 61 for Cal. Um, I I mean, I don't think either one of these teams is is very good running the ball in general, but it certainly showed up again in this one.
1: Yeah. The one thing that kind of stood out to me is like Washington was getting a lot of pressure off the edge. They've done that a lot this year. They've got good edge players. Um, and Jake Plummer was actually like showing some, or is it Jack Plummer? I don't remember what his name is. It doesn't matter. He's not meaningful enough to, to learn it, but he, uh, he did a pretty good job escaping the pocket and extending plays. And that was probably the most effective play for Cal in this game. Offensively was getting him out of the pocket and, uh,
0: finding someone kind of streaking across the middle at a broken on a broken play. Yeah. I don't think he watched the last two drives. You might've been, he <laughs> might've been asleep by then. Uh, he, he was yeah. Horrendous on the last two drives with the chance to tie the game. Horrendous.
1: Well, I think we've spent entirely too much time on this yes, game. We have. <laughs> so let's move on. So we had Arizona state 14 lose going down to Stanford 14, to, uh, sorry, 15 to 14 Stanford winning, uh, at home, another game that was just unbelievably hideous to watch. Uh, I caught the very end of this game. Arizona State absolutely blick-cooged like, an opportunity to win on the last play of the game. Uh, had a player like, pretty much wide open, just a bad throw and, and, and bad adjustment on the ball. Uh, br- brutal game to watch, though. I mean, just classic David Shaw bringing everyone down to
0: his level. I mean, anytime you can win a game without scoring a touchdown, like you know, Iowa will be proud.
1: Yeah, yeah. Again,
0: brutal. Yeah, uh, three hundred and twenty. Sorry, three hundred ninety-eight yards for Stanford, three hundred sixty-four yards for Arizona State. But uh, you know, not a lot of scoring. Just yeah, just uh, these are just two bad teams. I mean, that what what more do you want to say about it? I mean, Stanford's I guess showing a little bit of life with with their last couple. Of, they're on a winning streak now, so. I guess give David credit for that. They're winning a couple games here.
1: Yeah, like the the line of demarcation in the Pac 12 is like as these as the season has gone on, the the drastic quality difference between the top and bottom of the conference has really um amplified and shown itself. Like these bottom teams in the conference right now are just horrible. Um and Arizona State and Stanford certainly both belong in that bottom
0: tier without a doubt enough of about that game let's talk another. about another team that's in the bottom tier Colorado
1: Colorado and our Colorado principal now is six and one on the air because not believe I bet
0: against it what the hell was I thinking <laughs> what I I mean I deserve all the losses for that one I don't know what I was thinking I, th- I think they their win over Cal like sucked me in and I thought maybe Oregon State's quarterback woes you know would would show up or I don't know what I was thinking that they would cover a 24 point spread on the road I I was insane
1: yeah well four turnovers will help Uh, Colorado turned the ball over four times in this game Colorado continues to not be able to do anything offensively because well they have a horrible offensive coordinator and not a whole lot of talent and so um, they scored nine points in this game Oregon State ran the ball super effectively 6.1 yards per carry on 200 uh, for 270 total yards uh, rushing off in, in the passing game. Go Branson was fine. 14 for 22, two Oh two and two touchdowns. Uh, I would expect this to be his best performance of the season because, well, this is the worst team they're going to play. And uh, Colorado falls to one and six, looking kind of uh, looking ahead here a little bit for them. Um, they do have the pleasure of playing Arizona state this weekend, which Gives them a possibility for maybe win number two uh, prior to Oregon, USC, Washington, and Utah to finish the year. So oh. could be a pretty brutal finish for Colorado down the stretch.
0: And 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 Beavers move up to six and two overall, three and two in the conference. You know they're right there. You mentioned earlier the the top and the bottom. I've got I've got three sections in this conference. I've got the top four, the next three, and the bottom five, and and they're separated by what is on my little chart here. A very thick, solid line in between each of those three uh, three groupings of teams that I, I think will not be crossed, probably in any of the directions as the season wears on. But I think the Beavers are are right in the thick of that second second tier. Um, you know, they're playing good football, but they also have you know uh, several tough games ahead of them. You know, they go to they on the bye this week, and then they play up in Seattle at, at at the Huskies in a game that really is. must win for both of those teams if they want to keep any hope alive of getting to the conference championship game they'll need some help because a a two loss team getting to the conference championship game is pretty unlikely this year you would need multiple levels of help in the top four Um, but if you want to be one of those teams that's hanging around in case something happens it's washington or oregon state are the only two that have a shot at it so that game will be critical for both of their seasons
1: yeah does oregon state have a bye week they do so both, both have a bye this week Yeah, both teams have a bye going into the game in seattle uh it's gonna be a friday night game uh i that's i think that's going to determine in the old north who the second team is um agreed so should be should be a
0: fun game looking forward to that one here in two weeks yeah i'll be fun it'll be fun to preview that one because i think some interesting things could happen there I think that takes us to our updated power rankings before we talk about the national game. So um, let's just, uh, you know, not not get too uh, suspenseful. Colorado's 12. Yeah, Colorado's 12, ASU right in front of them at
1: 11. Um, I've got Cal. No. I do. I have Cal. I think they're terrible. No, they're not good, but they're not. ASU just lost to Stanford.
0: (laughs) My Stanford's a lot higher than yours, I think.
1: (laughs) I mean, Stanford has to be higher because I, so I've So i got
0: Arizona at 10 and Cal at 9. I also um, have Arizona at 10, and I have Arizona State at, at 9. Okay, well. Uh, so we just have Cal and ASU flip-flop. That's our difference. Yeah, but Cal did beat Arizona. Like bad. Like they smoked them. Yeah, that was a long time ago. And it was a fluke. And Arizona's the worst team. I don't know. I, I,
1: I get to have I, my I,
0: pick, man. I can have my pick. No, no, Cal is terrible. No, yeah.
1: Playing the victim because you don't want to defend a bad take is a really good look on you, Doug. I think that's you should do that more
0: often. I mean, have you watched California play?
1: Yeah, but okay. Arizona
0: can't stop a common cold. Colorado, like like these teams, like. We have Arizona in the same spot. Yeah, but we're debating Cal versus Arizona State. Yes,
1: like Cal is a better football team than Arizona State. It's fine. We disagree. We move forward. I've got Stanford at eight because really it's the only place they can be because they have actually yep. beat some of these teams. Um And yeah. The, so Stanford, also Stanford at eight. Yep. Wazoo naturally just kind of falls in at seven. Yep. I think that they're kind of the bottom of the middle tier that you were discussing a moment ago. Would you agree yep. with that? I would agree with that. Okay. Washington at six and Oregon State
0: at five. Yep. I agree with both of those.
1: All right. And then the natural order, just based on the way that the round Robins have worked so far, you got USC at four, Utah at three, UCLA at two, and Oregon at one. It's kind of funny how that works. Oregon beats UCLA, UCLA beats Utah, Utah
0: beats USC. That's all nice and tidy right now. And I'll note that I've had Oregon at number one for three weeks, and I've been right. Yeah, you have. <laughs> but that was some projection. There was some projection going on. Yeah,
1: try, trying to, I'm just trying to maintain a shred of journalistic integrity,
0: integrity for us, although... Are we journalists? No, not nothing close <laughs> to journalists, but... <laughs> the podcast integrity, I don't Is there a podcast yeah. or a set of ethics? I digress.
1: I'm trying to not be a homer, but now that we're very clearly the best team in the conference, I can go back to being a
0: homer. That's fair. That's fair. I think that's the fastest we've ever gone through our power rankings, but I do think as the season wears on there, there's a lot less volatility well, and movement. Yeah. I'm it's just obvious. Kind of settling into their spot, you know?
1: Yeah. Like, like Colorado, like they're cemented and like we, we already have their, their plaque for 12th place. And um, I think at this point, <laughs> (laughs) the top four is pretty much in stone They're a little bit interchangeable um, as as we
0: get through some of these games to finish the year. But yeah, uh, if you look,
1: yeah, sorry. The middle is kind of starting
0: to sort itself out. Yeah. I think if you look at, I mean the bottom tier, whatever they'll play each other and some movement will happen in the middle tier. Again, I think that Washington Oregon state game is going to kind of, you know, solidify who's number five. And then in the top tier, I I mean, there might not be any movement for weeks because none of them play each other. Um, They actually all play, pretty weak teams for the next couple of weeks. So unless there's a major upset, I think it's probably just going to roll until we get to that massive showdown weekend on the 19th of November, when Oregon plays uh, Utah and UCLA plays USC and that will, will settle all the, all the cards.
1: Yep. Yeah, I agree.
0: Well, let's get through, through some of, of the actual games. Yeah. Let's get through some of these national games. All right, first one up. Uh, this is an early game. Syracuse went on the road to Clemson. Clemson's a 14-point home favorite, fell down 21-10 to 10 early, looked like the Orange might pull off the massive upset. Clemson stormed back 17 unanswered in the second half, all in the fourth quarter to win by 6, 27-21. DJ got benched in this one. Clemson wins by 6, doesn't cover, so we both took the L on this one.
1: Yeah, Um if they would have came out like a little bit sharper in the first half, I think this would have been a pretty easy cover um, because the drive chart for Syracuse in the second, second uh, half goes punt, punt, punt,
0: punt, 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 interception. Yeah. Not a lot of yardage in there either. Right. 20, 31, 20, 27. They had like 50 yards total in the second half.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Clemson sleepwalked a little bit early on. They made
0: a quarterback change. Did they stick with that change or did he come back in? he did not come back in, but they only threw the ball four times. Uh, Klubnik had four to pass attempts. They just ran, they just ran and ran and ran and it worked. And then they came out after the game and immediately said, DJ is the quarterback. So,
1: yeah, it was kind of funny. You had a, a commentator asking, uh, like for on the Syracuse size, if Sean Tucker was in witness protection because their best player just got like zero touches in this game, which is kind of a weird thing to do when you're up, like when your best player is your running back, and you have a twenty-one to ten lead, um, to just kind of let him go MIA and not have any impact on the game. Um, five carries for fifty-four yards for their star player,
0: and their backup running uh, running or no, their quarterback ran it twenty-one times.
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly uh, an interesting twist on this game, but Clemson clearly the better team deserved a win, um, and we in Syracuse kind of starts to fall a little bit now, six and one with a a pretty tough stretch of games to finish the season upcoming.
0: Yeah. We talked about that in our preview. I think they, they got several more losses on the, in the next few weeks for, for Syracuse, unfortunately for them, Uh, Ole Miss and LSU. This is one where we both took LSU uh, minus the one and a half and (laughs) they drubbed Ole Miss 45 to 20. Uh, blew him out 28 to zero in the second half after what was a, a very close first half. And LSU just ran away with this thing. Jaden Daniels, 21 for 28, 240 yards, 240 yards, two touches, another 121 on the ground, three more touchdowns, so five total touchdowns. And he, he just ran and threw all over Ole Miss.
1: Yeah, it turns out that Ole Miss is pretty fraudulent, um, at least as in terms of being a 7-0 and top 10 ranked team. Uh, but I think that they're going to have a nice ba- bounce back. They're playing Texas A&M next week, and as we'll get to here in a moment, Texas A&M is uh, certainly strange. A winnable game. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: Texas, Oklahoma State. This was a great game, uh, really back and forth. Uh, Texas had a pretty good lead, and then Oklahoma State, Fourteen, nothing in the fourth quarter to win by seven. Um, Ewers had a couple of chances to drive them down the field and get the tying touchdown through picks. He had three interceptions in this game, so not his best performance. And the Cowboys bounce back from their loss to TCU last week and beat Texas forty-one to thirty-four at home. Um, definitely knocking Texas out of any like long shot playoff talk that was going on all of last week, and and also you know taking command of. Of a spot, a potential spot back in the uh, Big Twelve title game for Oklahoma State.
1: Yeah, uh, Queen yours was nineteen for forty nine, and that sounds horrible. I watched this game very intently, actually, because uh, I'll get to it here in a moment. I had a I had a little bit of scratch on a uh, related bet to this game, but yours was under a lot of pressure. I think Texas really struggled to block the interior of the Oklahoma State. Uh, Defensive line. They were bringing pressure. They were able to get to him, and he was throwing with good anticipation, trying to get balls out quick. But there was a billion drops by Texas receivers in this game. Some uh, missed adjustments. There was a touchdown catch, an easy touchdown catch for Xavier Worthy, um, where he just kind of stumbled out of his break, unfortunately. So uh, one of those things where he he did make some tough decisions late. Uh, They also had a really big run play by Ewers called back on a pretty questionable holding call. Uh, So. T- tough tough outcome, especially for someone who had a parlay going where they had already hit. Well, I hadn't already hit on them at the time, but I felt pretty comfortable about um, about hitting. So between yours in Texas, uh, losing me a couple hundred bucks on that parlay, but it's all good. We'll move forward.
0: All right. Mississippi State went to Alabama. Uh, we both picked Bama to cover the 21 points. We didn't really hesitate at all, and uh, they, they won by 24. Mississippi State had nothing going in this game. They scored their six points at the very last play of the game, although it was 30 to zip going into there, and I think that broke some kind of crazy streak where they hadn't scored in Tuscaloosa in forever or something.
1: Yeah, they. I think this is like the 15th point they've scored in their last four trips to Tuscaloosa. <laughs> so felt pretty good about this game for that reason. I know you did as well. Texas or Bama looks to kind of have gotten some kind of edge back. They certainly got Elias Ricks back and he was dominant in this game at the cornerback position. Um, Still some questions, I think about the ability of this Alabama team to run Um, not, not due to lack of running back talent because Jameer Gibbs has been fantastic, but uh, maybe some offensive line issues against some of the better teams and just really the lack of like alpha explosive playmaker on the outside of the receiver position. But uh, as this Alabama team gets healthy, um, and continues to roll down the stretch. That they are certainly
0: still a threat to win the SEC. Oh, without a doubt, they'll be in. Uh, they'll be in Atlanta playing for that game. I have no doubt. Uh, moving over to the Big Ten, Penn State was looking for a bounce back whiteout game, hosting the Minnesota Golden Gophers. We both had all our money, our proverbial money, on Penn State covering the five points, and it was no question, forty-five to seventeen, the Nittany Lions rolled it up on the Gophers in this one.
1: Yeah, Minnesota is just bad. Like, I I know we talked about them being good early in the season, especially without their starting quarterback. Um, Ibrahim is the only quality piece of this offense at this current point. Um, Like, at one point in this game, I believe the quarterback was, like, one for nine for 12 yards. Not, Not a great start for Minnesota's backup quarterback, who finished on the day nine of 22 for 175, one touchdown and one pick. Uh, the, the Minnesota defense is competitive, but just with the punt machine that they were in the first half, they were just on the field so much, and there were so many possessions given to Penn State that there was just no way that they weren't going to roll up some points. So um, Good to see Penn State bounce back. I think that they're pretty clearly the third-best team in that
0: league right now, but there's a substantial drop-off after Ohio State and Michigan. Yeah, which was made clear a week ago. <laughs> um, back to the Big Twelve, of course. The big, the other big matchup of the day outside of uh, nine versus ten in the Pac twelve was uh, number eight TCU hosting number seventeen Kansas State in a game which uh, was very competitive and, and quite back and forth. TCU won at home, thirty eight to twenty eight, covering the three and a half point spread. Got me the win and took a loss for you. On the okay,
1: way. I will. I will say that. Uh, Kansas State was up 28-10 in the first half they um, before they not only lost their starting quarterback but their backup quarterback for the game. Um, and TCU continues their run of just apparently murdering quarterbacks every game and playing backups for the remainder. We see Dylan Gabriel. We've seen um, uh, Jalen Davies or Jalen Davis from, from Kansas. And now we see Adrian Marten- Martinez and Will Howard. Um, who did manage to come back into the game a little bit later. But, yeah, the, the Kansas State offense basically stopped when Adrian Martinez got hurt. TCU was able to kind of slowly and methodically come back, and just their their overall explosiveness offensively and the talents that they have at receiver is really, really tough to deal with. So, um, good, good win for TCU. I still don't see them going undefeated, uh, but I think that they are very firmly in the driver's seat in the big the Big 12 at this point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think they've had like three – three pretty big comebacks in a row now. Like you said, it feels like... I mean, I don't think their defense is very good at all. I mean, they can score like crazy. It feels like their defensive strategy is to just knock the quarterback out of the game and we'll outscore the other team. I I don't know what else is going on over there.
1: Yeah, so TCU's remaining schedule, they go to to West Virginia um, this coming weekend. Then they have uh, Texas Tech the following at home. They go to Texas, to Baylor, and have Iowa State at home to finish the year. So, I think Texas, Baylor, um, and Tech are probably the three games that have circled there as most possible losses. But um, I, I mean, you never know. Maybe, maybe TCU can keep the luck going and they can they can win out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd probably I'd probably think they lose one of those. Uh, probably te- at Texas is the most likely, and then uh, you know, then they're in the Big Twelve title game with one loss and see what happens there. I, that's that race is I can't even. I don't even want to go through all the permutations of possibilities in the big 12 yet. I'll wait a few more weeks.
1: Yeah. As I say, just let that one play out a couple more weeks. I think it'll be pretty obvious here in no time at all.
0: All right. So that's all the games we picked, but I do have a few bonus games that I wanted to bring up. Um, First of all, just a quick shout out to my East Carolina purple pirates. They, I don't think they're really the purple pirates, but they wear purple and they're pirates. So they're purple pirates. They won thirty-four-thirteen over University of Central Florida. So go pirates. Uh, but really, let's talk about uh AM, South Carolina, particularly AM. Three and four. They dropped a three and four on the year after losing at South Carolina game. They trailed seventeen to nothing, like, I don't know, two minutes into the game. Um, and then, you know, tried to get their way back into it, but South Carolina did enough in the end to to win in a game in which they only managed 300, 303 yards but they won 30 to 24, dropping A&M to three to 3 and 4 on the season.
1: Yeah. I mean, this is, I think just retribution for all the ugly games that AM has won over the course of the, of the, of the Jimbo Fisher tenure, including this year. Um, like this game was not pretty from South Carolina, but it was effective. They got, they capitalized on all of their opportunities given either, uh, by a big special teams play in the, like the, the the opening kickoff return uh, or turnovers deep in A&M territory that they turned into points. Um, good good win for, for Beamer in the South Carolina program, but to me this more spells problems for Texas A&M than anything else. Like this Texas A&M team is just – they just lack any type of like explosive consistency offensively. They try to lean on A-chain as an every down back despite his best skill set being more as a – um, scat back who comes in situationally, and they don't have a very good offensive line or a very good quarterback, and And the young guys on defense play good in spurts but um, could get manned up at times, and because of that, they, uh, they're they going to continue to lose, and I think that they're going to have a pretty rough end of the year, and I, I'm i starting to think it's
0: going to be difficult for them to find their way to a bowl game. Yeah, they need three more wins. They've got uh, Ole Miss next. Uh, that's at home, and they play Florida at home go to auburn uh umass and then lsu so they four out of their last five games are at home uh with the auburn the auburn trip being the only road game so but they got to win three of those and there's um there's definitely four losable games in that stretch with the with the quality of their offense
1: yeah it's it's tough i don't it, and, and here's the deal, like missing a bowl game, if you're a team like a who's playing the type of youth that they're playing is really, really tough to stomach because now you're losing 15 additional practices, essentially a whole nother spring ball um, that could be used to help develop those guys and get those guys better for next year. So um and has got a lot of soul searching to do. I think at this point, it's just kind of survive the season, try to salvage it the best you can and uh, go into this offseason and try to figure out a solution for that offense.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about another team that lost this week to fall to 3 and 4 on the season, 1 and 2 in conference. Um the Miami Hurricanes. They have they lost 45 to 21 at home against Duke in a game in which Miami turned the ball over 8 times.
1: Yeah, you're not going to win a lot of games turning the ball over 8 times. Uh, But also having a Duke running back throw up the U and then break it over his knee in your own stadium in front of about 2,500 people is not a great look for Mark. Wait, wait, you said
0: 2,500. I mean, I, I saw the attendance was like 55,000 QB.
1: There was legitimately a tweet by a random spectator who was in town for the Miami NFL game, who was like, Oh, we showed up to the stadium to do like a stadium tour. And we realized that Miami was playing. So we got tickets for $2.70 each and sat and watched a football game. And they, they flat out like showed the receipt of the tickets and everything like that. And then the picture from the stadium, that place was empty. Um, and that's a problem. Like they, this was supposed to be the hire that reinvigorated a fan base that apparently just doesn't exist um, and, and get some going. And, and really like you can, you can blame former talent. You can blame maybe some culture issues within the, the team that, uh, were inherited by Mario. But, like, this is to Duke. Duke was a freaking horrible football program for a very long time before Mike Elko got hired. And he came in and has them playing inspired football, executing um, and, and playing clean. And Mario's team looks horrible. They look, they, they don't execute at a high level on offense. They don't play with, really any tenacity defensively. I mean, they're solid in the front, but they just they don't swarm to the ball. They they don't tackle well. Um, a lot of the things that kind of plagued Oregon teams of the last few years are quickly appearing to be trends in Miami. And so, I—I uh, I, again, I don't root against Mario. I've had some run-ins with their fan base this offseason that make me kind of root against Miami as a program. Uh, but there's, there's some problems there that I think are going to take some pretty substantial time to fix. But it's not a good sign when you spend all this money on a staff and a head coach and you go into the portal and spend a bunch of NIL money there and you're getting beat at home by Duke by multiple scores. I mean, Duke basically doing the mercy rule to not drop a 50-burger on you um, when they get that last turnover down in your own area. So tough, tough start to the season for Miami. I don't really think they're going to make a bowl
0: game either. Yeah, I mean they've lost four out of their last five, and the only win in that stretch was a six point victory over a Virginia Tech team who's who's also lost four in a row and is, is really not a good football team at all. So Miami's uh the struggling. They they need three more wins. They go at Virginia, Florida State, at Georgia Tech, Clemson, and Pittsburgh. I mean there's is there three wins in there? Maybe. But yeah, maybe it may be easy. I mean, I think Virginia and Georgia
1: Tech are very winnable games for yeah. sure. But um, then you got to
0: beat one of Florida State, Clemson, and Pitt. I well, they're don't... not
1: beating they not beating Clemson. No, like Clemson and that Clemson staff, especially because you got to remember that like Mario's now recruiting against those guys. Like they're 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 going to want to send a message in that game. Like Clemson is going to beat the brakes off of Miami, um, and, and Florida State being a rivalry game uh, is what it is. Uh, I think I think
0: it's going to be a really tough road here. I mean, Florida State's lost three games, but their losses are t- by ten points to Wake, by two points to NC State before they lost their quarterback, and and by six points to Clemson. Like, like you know, Florida State could be actually be a pretty good team.
1: Yeah, and Florida State's going to continue to get more healthy here down the stretch. Like, Florida, Florida State is immensely more competent than than Miami at this stage. Like, the Miami offense is really really brutal to watch. The, the regression of Tyler Van Dyke uh, in year one under Josh Gaddis, like this is. Although it, it's uh, I'm getting some senses of deja deja vu here.
0: Well, I think that will uh, pretty much wrap up this episode. QB, you want to bring us home and uh, it's been a great chat with you about this game. And Ducks obviously go to Cal next week, and we'll talk about that.
1: Yeah. So coming up this week, we have uh, the Thursday pod, which is going to be our preview, and we do our picks for the coming week. Um, again, wanted to th- say thank you. I've had a lot of people reach out this last weekend. Um, just kind of giving Doug, uh, more Doug than myself, but giving Doug and I, the, the props for, um, some of the, some of the coverage that we've been able to give the team this year and we do it because you guys like it. So we really appreciate you guys all reaching out and, and interacting with us in any way, shape or form. Just, uh, our DMS are both open. If anyone ever has questions or, um, has a comment or maybe something that we could do to enhance the, the podcast listening experience. Uh, We'd love all that feedback, so please don't be shy. Reach out um, to either Doug at DouglasTS, myself at QB11SD, or the podcast Twitter account at QB11show on Twitter. Um, and, And we really look forward to talking to you guys later this week.